Welcome to The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Forestine. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. It is Friday, November 22nd, and we are all coming to you from STAT's headquarters in Boston thanks to the STAT Summit, a big conference that STAT put on in Cambridge, Massachusetts this week. First up, our STAT colleague Lev Fasher will join us to talk about Elizabeth Warren and how her move to the left on healthcare has made things awkward in her home state of Massachusetts. Next, we'll discuss a new drug to treat the genetic condition that is the most common cause of dwarfism and why it's proving to be divisive in the little people community. And finally, we'll bring you some highlights from the STAT Summit, where we peppered the likes of Daphne Kohler, Al Sandrock, and Nick Leshley with some burning questions. But first, a word about STAT Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? Subscribe to STAT Plus to get stories like these. STAT Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. Healthcare is a basic human right, and I will fight for basic human rights. Senator Elizabeth Warren has built her campaign for president on a progressive health care platform, one that calls for reining in pharmaceutical companies, lowering drug prices, and expanding Medicare. Today, I get to announce a plan where working families who are projected to spend $11 trillion over the next 10 years can see those costs go to zero. A plan where people who are struggling right now to figure out how they're going to manage their health care bills We'll see the solution. A plan. But Warren wasn't always so strident. Stats Love Fasher in the Boston Globe's Liz Goodwin wrote a story this week about how Warren's policy leanings have evolved over the years and how that evolution has made things a little awkward in her home state of Massachusetts. Love joins us now to talk about it. Lev, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Thank you. So, Lev, Warren is arguably the most progressive candidate in the race on health care issues. While she and Bernie Sanders both support Medicare for all, only Warren has detailed the plan to fund it. And both talk about drug companies with unmatched animosity. Was Warren always like this? The short answer is no. Elizabeth Warren has not always been in favor of Medicare for all. And while she's never really positioned herself as a friend to the drug companies, she used to have a much more open dialogue with the massive Massachusetts biotech community. And when she ran for Senate in 2012, she actually did so on the back of a pledge to one of Massachusetts' other large healthcare business constituencies, medical device manufacturers, at a time that Republicans were really slamming Obamacare, talking about issues with open enrollment and the Obamacare website. Warren actually campaigned pledging to repeal the medical device tax that Obamacare enacted. So that was really a favorable stance for her with some Massachusetts business leaders. She didn't come to support Medicare for All until 2017, though it should be noted that as a Harvard law professor and as a bankruptcy researcher, Warren has been doing work for decades showing the toll that healthcare expenses take on American families and the fact that really a ton of bankruptcies in the United States are born of massive, massive healthcare costs. So she's always talked about drug companies in the frame of her 
anti-corporate populist rhetoric, but it's only in the last few years that we've seen her shift toward Medicare for all, that we've seen her become one of the more aggressive legislators on the drug pricing issue and just generally emerge as this progressive voice for top to bottom healthcare reform. So she is really putting a lot of muscle and a lot of brain power behind these plans. And that is somewhat new for her. So, Love, you write in your story that a lot of Warren's animosity toward drug companies can be traced back to the 21st Century Cures Act. What was that bill, and why was Warren's vote against it such a big deal? The 21st Century Cures Act was the last piece of legislation, I believe, that Barack Obama signed into law. The bill did a lot to smooth the path to approval for new drugs and medical devices in some instances. It changed or even loosened requirements for evidence that drug makers and biotechs and device manufacturers need to submit. It contained about $5 billion new dollars in money for federal research. It included the cancer moonshot, which was named after Bo Biden, the son of Senator Warren's primary opponent, Joe Biden. Elizabeth Warren was one of just four Democrats and five senators overall to vote against the legislation. She said it was a big pharma handout. She said drug companies had hijacked the legislation. And it was really the moment for her that her bread and butter issue, which was corporate greed in the context of large financial institutions, came to focus on healthcare. So her vote against it was really a stake in the ground. She had done a lot of work to advance the bill. She worked with the Senate Help Committee as early as 2015 to shape it. She really wanted more research money. She really didn't like some of the clauses that changed data standards for drug and device manufacturers to get a product to market. And she, with Bernie Sanders, actually voted no in the face of a lot of the New England business community that really wanted this research money, that really wanted these new standards. Uh, a lot of researchers who were excited about the brain initiative and the cancer moonshot, and actually a lot of addiction treatment advocates in Massachusetts who were excited for about a billion dollars in money to fight the opioid crisis that the bill contained. But for Warren, it had gone too far. Drug in companies had just lobbied too aggressively. And of course, this vote was just weeks after President Trump was elected. And Senator Warren had really emerged then as a likely presidential candidate in 2020. So in one of her first actions, maybe less as a Massachusetts senator and more as an emerging national political voice, she voted no on a bill that was almost unanimous in the Senate, joining very, very few Democrats in opposing it and really engendering a lot of opposition up in Massachusetts. So getting back to the 2020 campaign, it took Warren kind of a long time to unveil a specific healthcare policy. Beyond Medicare for All, what does her drug pricing platform look like? So just recently, in the process of talking about how she'd pay for Medicare for All, Warren got much more detailed on drug pricing, and she essentially did it by borrowing two pieces of legislation. One is Nancy Pelosi's, the bill we've talked so much about in the House of Representatives. The other is from a House member from Texas named Lloyd Doggett. So essentially, Warren is taking the greatest hits of progressive drug pricing proposals and mashing them together. And she projects that if her Medicare for all bill were enacted, taxpayers would save, which is to say drug companies would lose $1.7 trillion in revenue over the coming decade. She would include an international price index. She includes Medicare negotiation, of course. There's a compulsory licensing provision that 
if drug companies don't negotiate with the federal government or if they don't lower their prices to match international levels, government could essentially award a license to manufacture their drug to a generic competitor. So they're really the nuclear option for drug pricing. And Warren, I think, has projected larger savings from her drug pricing plan compared to any piece of legislation any Democrat has introduced this Congress. So she's really out there, even if she's a little late to the party. Speaking so harshly about pharmaceutical companies is an interesting exercise in Massachusetts, you know, obviously a state with an economy dominated by life science research and biotech as well as large pharma. How have local business leaders reacted to Warren's tone on the campaign trail? You know, not well. There's a degree to which any Democratic candidate is not going to speak favorably about corporate America on the campaign trail when running for president. And that's understandable. But I think the tone that Senator Warren set in 2016 was a really clear stake in the ground that she just wasn't going to be super outwardly sympathetic to the major industry presence in Massachusetts of biotech and of pharma. That said, she still has a relationship with a lot of the biotech in the Boston area. During Scott Gottlieb's tenure at the Food and Drug Administration, she actually flew him up to Cambridge and he did a couple of roundtables with her with local biotech executives. So there's not no relationship, but I talked to Bob Coughlin and Bob is the CEO of MassBio, the the local biotech and pharma lobby. Bob and Senator Warren are not as friendly as they used to be. And we know that because Bob has accused Senator Warren of demonizing her constituents who work in biopharma. So I think everyone knows there is an inevitability to harsh rhetoric toward corporate America from presidential candidates. But I think a lot of the people who work at small biotechs in Massachusetts, especially those that don't even have a product on the market, I think there's some concern about the way their home state senator is talking about their industry And they wish that there were more of an acknowledgement that some of these policies might impact businesses back home. Of course, Senator Warren would say that people in Massachusetts care as much as people in any other state about being able to afford their prescriptions. And she is legislating in that frame. But it's really been a noteworthy shift from Senator Warren as she's emerged as a presidential frontrunner on health care. And of course, that has ramifications for the business community back in Massachusetts. Well, love, keep us posted on Warren's campaign. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, as always. Usually when drug companies invent a medicine for a rare condition, they can count on the support of patients, whether the issue is recruiting clinical trials, lobbying the FDA, or putting pressure on insurance companies. But that's not quite the case when it comes to achondroplasia, a rare genetic condition that is the most common cause of dwarfism. So Biomarin Pharmaceuticals is developing a drug for achondroplasia, and in clinical trials, it looks like it's going to work. Some patients and parents see this as great news. But others see Biomarin's drug as a threat to the identity of an entire community. Damien, you wrote a story about this issue this week. Uh, What's at the heart of the dispute? So I think it's important to understand that achondroplasia leads to short limbs and short stature with a sort of hallmarks of dwarfism, but also hearing loss, spinal problems. It can be tied to obesity and cardiovascular issues in the long term, which can be life-threatening complications. So almost everyone considers the former aspect, short stature, as a difference to be celebrated in society, not a problem to be fixed. 
But everyone agrees that the complications, the latter things, are serious and should be treated as such. So through that framing comes this drug. And so the sticking point is that Biomarin is using height as its primary measure of whether the drug works in clinical trials. Some in the achondroplasia community who have spent decades advocating for acceptance of people with short stature look at that and say, this is just a drug to make people taller. This is something that will undo our many efforts to explain to people that it's okay to be short, that there's nothing wrong with dwarfism, all in the name of treating disease where they would say one doesn't exist. So, Damien, does Baumarin's drug only make people taller? So, no. In theory, this is kind of the important point coming from the side of the drug company and the side of the many people who look at this drug as an encouraging development. So the drug is called Visoratide, and it's meant to encourage bone growth. So that means it would make people with a chondroplasia taller by growing bones in in the leg and, and other bones associated with height. But it would also help bones grow in the spine and the skull. And that would prevent the long term and, and like I said, sometimes life threatening complications that people often experience, especially with spinal stenosis, where the bones in the spine basically are not big enough and they, they strangle the spinal cord, which leads to serious nervous problems. However, as I mentioned, the primary endpoint for these trials is growth in height. And that's because proving that Visoratide has those long-term benefits that everyone wants would require running a trial that lasts for decades, which, you know, as Biomarin says, would be impractical and very, very expensive. So you spoke to members of the little people community, you know, kind of on both sides of the issue. And so tell us what they told you. So there are a wide range of opinions about this. And A lot of people fall in a little bit of a gray area. But I would say, you know, on one side are people, often adults with achondroplasia, who look at what Biomarin is proposing, which is to treat children with this disease with a drug that will, in the short term, almost certainly make them taller and in the long term, hopefully relieve them of the medical complications that come with it. And they see that as, I mean, words that I've heard used are eradication, genocide and elimination, because basically what that would result in is the identity that they identify with or that they, and that they fought so hard for acceptance of, which is dwarfism, would be less common. And, you know, you could paint that as being filtered out of society. And, and that's frightening and, and alarming to a lot of them. Now, on the other side are people, many of whom also have a chondroplasia, who look at the drug as, you know, as you mentioned, like a godsend. One, the possibility that it would relieve them of these complications. But for a lot of people, height itself is desirable. They point out that the psychosocial implications of having dwarfism are very difficult, especially for children with bullying. But even beyond that, the practical nature, our world was designed for people of average height, not for people of short stature. And that creates problems that go beyond the social. They can be quite serious. In fact, I had one physician tell me about a patient and friend of his who had spinal stenosis as a result of her achondroplasia and fell from a public toilet that was too large for her and died of the resulting injuries. And to his mind, you know, this is not a cosmetic issue or an issue of identity. It's an issue of if this drug existed, his friend might still be alive. So this drug, of course, is targeted towards children. Damien, when you spoke with the parents of the intended recipients of this drug, what did they tell you? So they, too, kind of had a panoply of opinions. There was one woman of average height who has a son with a chondroplasia, and she said she looked at this whole endeavor as a means of telling her son that he wasn't good enough, that he wasn't okay, that the way he was born was a problem, was a disease rather than just a difference from many other kids. But there are lots of other people who are much more supportive of this, and not necessarily because they disagree with the concept of dwarf pride, which a lot of people with dwarfism subscribe to, and it's the idea that that, you know, you can flourish because of your body, not in spite of it, that one should embrace the way one was born. But what these parents say is it's not so much that they don't want their child to be short. 
it's that, you know, I guess like with any parent, you want the best for your child. And if you get the diagnosis at a young age and you're told that your son or daughter may go on to need a wheelchair, may go on to have a heart attack as a result of this diagnosis, you would naturally want something that could prevent that. And they look at Vasorotide in that context. So I found that a lot of people kind of split the difference between maybe the more hardline takes on the existence of this drug. David, I wanted to get back to Biomarin for a second, because again, as we said at the top, you know, most times I think drug companies sort of count on the sort of unqualified support of the patient community that they're working with. That's not the case here. So what is Biomarin doing about all this? I think their effort has been to be as transparent as possible. I know they've reached out to Little People of America, which is the largest group of people with achondroplasia in this country, and tried to interface with them. There have been stumbles there because of the very strong emotions here. But I think Biomarin is very much trying to show its cards. The scientists acknowledge that they can't say definitively, like I said, that this drug will prevent these long-term things, but they've definitely been transparent. They published in the New England Journal of Medicine with the data they have so far and why they think the hypothesis therein is compelling. And I think, you know, between Biomarin, between the patients and the parents, one thing that struck me in kind of reporting this story out is I, and not that my opinion is, is terribly important, but I believe everyone I talked to was telling me the truth about why they held the position they held on this matter. I think it's just a matter of you know, adults disagreeing about something related to science and to medicine and to health. And it does seem like, just from tracking it for the time that I have, that the parties in question are moving toward a middle ground. I think they've learned also how to not police their language, but how to make sure they're communicating their interest in achondroplasia in a way that does not alienate those who might have a slightly different view of it than they do. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Linda Henry, Managing Director, STAT. Good morning, everyone. I feel so lucky uh, to be here to welcome everyone to the inaugural STAT Summit, where we will explore the frontiers of health and medicine. That was the inaugural STAT Summit, which drew several hundred biotech types to Cambridge, Massachusetts this week to talk about some of the biggest stories and trends in the industry. In between the panel discussions up on stage, we sat down with some of biotech's biggest names and asked each of them a different question. Let's run through those questions now. So a lot of people are skeptical that Biogen's Alzheimer's drug actually works. Al Sandrock, the company's head of research, is not among them. He believes that aducanumab will become the first FDA-approved Alzheimer's treatment in 17 years. So we asked him, assuming you're right, what happens next? So what I'm hoping is that if it's approved, this will be the first of many approvals for not just Alzheimer's disease, but for neurodegenerative diseases in general. You know, and by that I would mean diseases like Parkinson's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. There's a whole host of these neurodegenerative diseases that have not been amenable to treatment thus far. Once somebody figures out how to do it, it seems like everybody else sort of follows suit. We hear a lot of hype around AI and machine learning these days, especially when it comes to discovering new drugs. Daphne Kohler is the founder and CEO of Incitro. That's a startup using machine learning in biotech research. We asked her, how soon will we have a drug that was discovered because of AI, not just with the help of it? 
I think we're already well on our way to uncovering the biology that will lead to the creation of a drug whose existence is due entirely to AI. How long it will take for the drug to actually make its way to a human patient is partly dependent on the length of time that it takes for a drug to make its way through the process. One of the things that I think we really hope to do is to find ways in which AI could also be used to shorten that process and allow, for instance, by identifying the right patient population, can we make the clinical trial process better by seeing larger effect sizes for smaller populations that are easily selectable in advance. And so I think there's really two benefits here. One is to making better drugs and discovering them using AI. And the other one is how can we accelerate the process and make it cheaper? In recent years, scientific advances have translated into breakthrough medicines for patients. But at the same time, the biopharma industry as a whole has never been more vilified. We asked Nick Leshley, CEO of Bluebird Bio, how the industry finds itself in this awkward spot. Unfortunately, the industry for many years has earned it. Even more unfortunately, continues to earn it. And so, well, what is going wrong? Well, I think part of this is there are some bad actors who are taking an egregious amount of return for what are some great innovations. And what I, what I state by that is, by definition, there is, should be an opportunity if you're going to take outsized sort of risk to get an outsized return. The issue is the egregious return. And the idea here is to say, if you look at, let's say, the top 10 biologics, and you just look at since launch, how much revenue and how much would be projected in the next couple of years, you get to north of a trillion dollars, if not one and a half trillion dollars. Now, I may be off, but it really doesn't matter. It's a big number no matter what. And is that really okay? Is that too big of an innovator's reward? Personally and on a human level, I think it absolutely is too big. And it takes too much money off the table from the system. And it's not needed to fund the innovation. Turning Point Therapeutics is developing genetically targeted drugs for cancer, and these precision medicines have shown dramatic benefits for patients. We asked Turning Point CEO Athena Kantariadis what her field will look like five years from now. You know, even looking back five years, I don't know if I would have known the explosion of immuno-oncology. You know, thinking of how much innovation occurs so fast, especially in the field of oncology, what I'd like to see five years from now is knowing that we have so much information now about the genome, why can't every patient be tested in terms of if they do actually have one of these oncogenic-driven fusions and or a very specific drug that could benefit them? Why are they still getting exposed to cytotoxic chemotherapy? I gave a lot of chemotherapy when I was a treating physician, and I'd love to see the day when that is definitely not the norm. Matt Might directs a precision medicine institute at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Early this year, he created an AI program to diagnose his critically ill son. We asked him, how long will it be until physicians can have AI assistance to help with diagnosis and treatment? Hopefully the not too distant future. And by that, I mean, probably, you know, 10, 15 years. It would not be unreasonable to start to see some significant integration of these technologies in healthcare systems, in everyday settings for everyday patients. You know, I think we're already at the point where rare and special case patients are going to start to see this technology deployed, and it will then trickle out across down to 
maybe even you know everyday well pediatrics type stuff. But ultimately, I think it will become pervasive. I think you'll have an AI assistant uh, working with the physician on every case every time they interact with the EHR. So that was the 2019 Stat Summit, and round two will be happening next fall in the Boston area at a date to be determined. To stay abreast of those plans, you can sign up for updates at statnews.com slash sign up slash summit. And for West Coast listeners, we should also note that Stat will be holding a health tech summit in San Francisco in May. Send us a note if you have any ideas of speakers and subjects you'd like to see discussed there. that does it for another episode of the read out loud and a programming note no podcast next week because of thanksgiving we'll be back on thursday december 5th with your regularly scheduled podcast thank you to hyacinth thempanato who produced this week's episode matthew orr and Alyssa ambrose are our senior producers and rick burke is our executive producer we'd love to hear from you tell us what you like about this week's episode what you didn't like and maybe give us some ideas for next year's stat summit you can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com we really do appreciate the feedback. And if you like what we do, please consider leaving us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you in two weeks. I'm glad someone typed that.